Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We explore their insights into some of the most exciting trends and topics of our time, and we learn from their personal experiences. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we will be talking about entrepreneurship, building great teams, avoiding failures, and startup trends. Today, we're talking to Andreas Birnik. Andreas is the co-founder of Creopop, the world's first 3D pen with cool ink, and co-founder of Carbon Story, a crowdfunding platform for climate change mitigation projects. He is originally from Sweden, but has lived in 10 countries prior to arriving in Singapore early 2006. Andreas previously held the position of Director of Smart City Solutions at Ericsson, and before that he worked as an advisor to telecoms operators, private equity investors, and startup technology companies. He is now a partner at Antler, a startup generator and early-stage VC that turns the world's top talent into great founders of great companies. Thank you so much for joining us, Andreas. Thank you, Isabel. It's a pleasure to be here. Good. So we like to kick off the podcast with a few questions for the listeners to get to know you better. So first, I would like to know, what is your morning routine? My morning routine, actually, uh, it's a little odd because I travel about 70% of my time. But certainly when I'm back home in Singapore, which are moments that I cherish cherish a lot, I usually go up really early around 6 o'clock. And since I do business with other parts of the world, I quickly kind of clear my email inbox for anything urgently that needs to be dealt with, typically talking to United States, either West Coast or East Coast, before they go offline. And then having done that, I usually go for a one-hour rapid exercise walk along the river where I kind of structure my day and I think about all the key things I need to achieve. After that, I come home and I shower and I have breakfast and I get back to work. That obviously changes a little bit when I travel around the world, but I tend to kind of go up really early check urgent things to deal with and then take like some exercise for about an hour to structure kind of my day. Wow, that sounds like a morning routine of an overachiever, which I know that you are, but that actually uh, would be cool because the next question is, when was the last time that you stepped out of your comfort zone? Oh, I tend to do that all the time, actually, Uh, which is, I think I gravitate towards these type of jobs where you have to push yourself constantly by being outside of your comfort zone and that is actually one of the things that I enjoy the most about Antler because we're having amazing teams in different locations around the world working with building companies sometimes in sectors and verticals that I have very limited experience from but yet it's really in our DNA to do everything we can to help these founders and to find a way, even if myself and other team members lack things. So on a daily basis, we really have to do everything for our founders, often in sectors where we have limited experience, which means we need to tap our networks and we need to put them in front of people who really know what they're doing with. And we need to help in bits and pieces in every possible way that we can. Very cool. Um, Andreas, I'm going to just jump straight in because you're a serial entrepreneur and you have several successful companies behind you. And I'm sure that we have uh, plenty of listeners who might be stuck in jobs. They're wondering whether or not it's time to leave. Perhaps they're dreaming of starting a company of their own. And I've had the pleasure of hearing you talk uh, passionately about uh, entrepreneurship at Antler, 
where I currently am a founder in their program in Stockholm. But for our listeners wondering whether or not they might become an entrepreneur one day, where do they start and how do they know if they should take the leap? I think it's a very good question. And I would advise people to adopt an investor mindset. So generally, venture capital and other types of investors don't just jump in and make an investment. They go through a structured process like a due diligence, analysis, investigation to figure out whether they want to invest in something. So I would encourage people to adopt the same mentality when it comes to their own career. Do do your due diligence, do your analysis to de-risk your next phase of your career. So if you think you want to be an entrepreneur, get to know other entrepreneurs out there who are already on the journey. Figure out what a day, what a morning, a day, a week, a month in their life looks like. See if you can be involved as an advisor, mentor in some kind of capacity part-time. So so essentially, rather than just sitting in a comfortable corporate job, investment bank, consultancy, big MNC, and just jumping straight into the entrepreneurship ocean, do de-risk that investment, think about what it's really like, talk to other people, and figure out whether this is for you. Think about your, your, your own life. What makes you tick? When do you feel most fulfilled, most happy? When do you maybe feel tired, anxiety, stressful? Try and figure out who who you are and different avenues that you can take in your life to have a fulfilling life. Also think about your life situation. Uh, entrepreneurship is a bit of a pressure cooker environment, usually for the first one, two, three years of a venture. So think about what's the implication of your significant relationships with a loved one, with your friends, with your family. What is your financial situation going to be like if the venture fails? Kind of really think through this from all possible different uh, angles to de-risk your investment. And once you are ready to jump on board, think about finding an appropriate support platform. And that's where a company generator like Antler can come in, giving you a stipend during the ideation phase of your company, putting you together with great co-founders, helping you to structure and build your company, introductions to corporates that you may sell into, channel partners, investors, etc. So really adopt kind of an investor mindset, de-risking your investment and taking it step by step rather than just jumping off a cliff into the entrepreneurship ocean. That would be my advice. That's very good advice. And you did did mention the importance of a co-founder. And as an advisor and partner in Antler, I know that you are dedicated to the utmost importance of a great team when building a successful business. Um, And in your experience, what do you look for? I guess even you invest in, in teams as well, but building a team, do you have any reflections on teams that you've been a part of or invested in that have failed and perhaps why did they fail? Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to team, uh, I like to cut cut out all politically correct sort of nonsense about what a team should be. And I tend to look at it 
very, very clearly in what is the kind of short-term objectives at hand that the team needs to achieve. Uh, because if you fail as a new venture in the short term, you don't have a medium term and a long term. Beyond that, I'm looking at what makes the long-term success of a team. So I think an analogy here is SEAL Team 6 going to take out Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad. So it sort of really thinks, who do you put on SEAL Team 6? That, I think, should be your first question as an entrepreneur. You want to achieve something, and every entrepreneur have got something different, typically, that they want to achieve. But it's kind of important, if you think about it, that people speak the same language so that you can communicate well. It's quite important that you have more or less the same values and work ethic in this thing. It's important that you are all professionals. But beyond that, if you're SEAL Team 6 taking out Bin Laden, you also need diversity of that team. Maybe you need snipers on the team. Maybe you need people that are good at explosives to go through doors and walls. Maybe someone's going to be hurt, hurt, so you want the medic. So it comes down to basically a combination of some degree of shared values, homogeneity, so that the team members form a cohesive whole, but also diversity, but not any kind of diversity, diversity that is meaningful in terms of helping the team achieve its short-term mission. That is kind of the first thing I'm looking at, because if the team cannot achieve its short-term objective, there won't be a longer-term future. But after that, I begin to thinking, once the first mission is achieved, so the company is going to go from the initial goal to finding new goals, the team needs to rejuvenate itself, need to explore new avenues, new possibilities. So that's where another type of diversity becomes meaningful, so that you are not just good at achieving a singular mission, but you can rejuvenate yourself and create new opportunities, new futures for the team. So I think that's really key thing I'm looking at. Then I'm looking at, will these team members be able to put up with the long hours and the stress of launching a company? Because everyone wants to create another Google or Facebook or kind of a big company, but is this a team that can survive massive setback? What if there are delays? What if things are costing twice as much as they thought and takes twice as long to realize as they set up? Will they be able to find a way to make it work anyway? Will they be able to cohesively pull together and overcome obstacles and setbacks? And that's quite often where I see team failing because uh, everything is good as long as it's rosy. But what happens when, as the English and Americans say, when the shit hits the fan, where is the team? Is it able to bounce back from that? Or does it simply fall apart and people go off to do other things? Uh, you talked about uh, the importance of diversity in, in teams, and obviously that would mean a diverse set of personalities or professionals. And uh, as mentioned, you've advised and invested in plenty of startups, and, and then you have met tons of entrepreneurs. How do you personally identify a really great entrepreneur? And on that note, have you ever been proven wrong? 
Oh, I, I'm kind of proven wrong all the time, and I think that's what sort of makes it exciting. Uh, there have absolutely been cases where I am convinced that someone is going to be excellent, but for various reasons, it doesn't play out like that. And there are also people that I've been skeptical about that turns out to be stellar. So one of the things that I'm sort of trying to, to do is to adjust really for my own biases in various ways. So certain countries will be really good at talking because they have speech and they have various type of things in that makes them project extroversion and they're very good at selling themselves. Other countries are more modest. That's kind of one attribute I tend to kind of adjust for. Also sometimes with men and women, sometimes men project more confidence than women do. So I tend to adjust for those possible biases as well by looking really not just at what people say and how they present themselves, but really looking at their past track record of achievement academically, professionally, in the social impact sector, various ways to try because it's sort of very easy to kind of have these cognitive biases based on who you are yourself, your own background, and how people present themselves when they pitch. And that actually bridges perfectly over to the next question, because there is quite a bit of research proving that we tend to invest in men over women, even if we know that the pitch decks are identical or projects equally good, and that we're more critical to female entrepreneurs, judging them as less capable or immature than male entrepreneurs. Actually, this was uh, recently identified in a Swedish study. And then psychology tells us, and, and you were uh, mentioning the same, that we have this bias to favor and prefer people who are similar to us. And it's no secret that most investors are male. Reflected in the statistics showing that a mere 2% of venture capital goes to female-driven startups. Do you have any thoughts on this or advice to investors for mitigated, mitigating their biases and then hopefully <laughs> in that uh, increasing the amount of uh, female entrepreneurs uh, receiving funding? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that both the female entrepreneurs need to work on and I think investors need to work on it because it takes two to tango. So one thing I, I think is great that you, among others, call out these biases and bring attention to it because the key point of biases is that you need to surface them and make, make people aware of them before we can actively begin to sort of manage them. And I think here that a lot of this goes down to Gert Hofstede's cultural dimensions. So Gert Hofstede did a study between 1967 and 1973 originally where he looked at cultural dimensions among IBM employees around the world because he wanted to keep company culture the same and IBM at the time was a very large international company. He's then replicated and extended it over time. But one of the things here that I think is key that countries that are more feminine versus masculine are lower in terms of projecting aggression, achievement, being forceful. So I think that is something that goes both for a cultural bias, that people coming from cultures that are more nurturing, caring, balanced, softer, can perceive as less hungry, less aggressive on a national level. And I think the same might go between men and women, which is why Hofstede uses masculinity and fem femininity, even though he's talking about natural cult uh, and national cultures. So I think here's an important thing 
to surface this, which is why I like to look at people's track record. I try to think, you know, not about how they sound, how confident they are, how much they project energy, force, drive, but really deeply understanding people's background. And this is where really interesting thing happens. Sometimes you have people who talk a good game because they have been through speech classes. They come from a culture that projects achievement, success, extroversion, but they may not actually have done a lot. While people, including from more feminine cultures and women themselves, when you actually look at their track record, what they have achieved, you can find consistent patterns of overachievement and success even though they don't sound as confident and forceful on stage. So I really like to keep that in my own head. Hofstede's cultural dimensions and not being mesmerized just by someone's pitch and stage presence, but really understanding where people are coming from and what they have achieved to date in their lives. So as I kind of use that as a means to kind of mitigate biases. And I think it's important as well for women pitching to kind of be very good at highlighting their track record of achievement and to not be shy about giving clear examples of what they have done, what they have achieved, uh, basically to help the investor understand that they, in many cases, come from a really solid background of achievements. Hmm. Very interesting, and I think a very good uh, tip. And and you you were talking about how uh, you know certain cultures are a lot better at selling themselves, and I immediately think of Americans. Uh, and I know that you have experience from Silicon Valley, and I've I've lived there myself. Uh, and I dare to say that they do operate a bit differently than they do here in uh, Scandinavia, it, not only in the way that they pitch themselves, but also uh, also in other aspects. Uh, but uh, from working there for, for as long as you have, in, in your view, what are the greatest differences between the two? I think there are many differences that are sort of interesting. Some of these are more easier to replicate than others. One thing that I think is amazing is sort of a pay-it-forward attitude. So the fact that in Silicon Valley and parts of U.S. East Coast, New York, Boston, you can also find it in Austin, Texas, Boulder, Colorado, Seattle, this thing of being very open to meeting people, that you can just ping someone on LinkedIn and they will give you an hours of their time. It, it kind of creates a wonderful, amazing culture when you can access senior people without needing to jump through hoops of gatekeepers. Try this in Paris. Try this in Tokyo, where there might be two, three, four, five layers of gatekeepers before you come to a really senior person. So sort of a paid-forward attitude, being able to give an hour of your time to people who want to meet you is a wonderful thing that uh, as part of creating an entrepreneurial ecosystem. There are a few other things that I think is key. One key thing in Silicon Valley is that very often you have investors that have made their money in tech. So they really know what it's like to build a high growth tech venture that is often pivoting, changing path, evolving. While in other ecosystems, very often we find investors that have made their money in real estate, uh, in private equity, in banking, uh, uh, in manufacturing, palm oil plantation, uh, uh, all kinds of other sectors. 
And the problem there is that these more traditional mature sectors are easier to forecast. They have more of a linear progression about how the company evolves. So quite often for those investors, it's kind of a little hard to wrap your head around a tech startup in search of product market fit, pivoting, evolving. So this is in many cases why having these tech-minded entrepreneurs who have made exits, reinvesting their money, is kind of a better, they are better coaches and mentors often for tech investors because they've really been through that journey and they understand that you're not going to make 36-month financial progression in Excel and then track it at monthly board meetings. That is a key thing really in Silicon Valley. And I've seen in some other ecosystems, traditional investors driving entrepreneurs crazy. Other things that I think is kind of difficult to replicate, but it's really part of Silicon Valley's success, is the idea that you have funds that really follow on in all successive rounds. So I was sitting with one of the partners at Bessemer Venture Partners, having a chat with him in the Redwood City office in December. And Bessemer has just raised their 10 fund. I think it's about $1.75 billion. There, and they, by the way, have a commitment to look at any antler company that I bring them. Kind of a really interesting thing here is that their philosophy is that an entrepreneur should not have to go elsewhere for capital if Bessemer invests in them, which means that an entrepreneur can really focus on building the business, gaining traction. And if they're doing well, Bessemer and others like Sequoia, uh, Greylock, etc., will typically follow on through successive financing rounds, and they will syndicate the investment coming from other investors. And if I contrast this, say, with a lot of other parts in the world, so between Christmas and New Year, I had a lunch with a successful Swedish entrepreneur who was sort of pulling his hair, and he was saying, 2008 was a pretty good year, but if I'm looking back at the year, I actually spent 70% of my time fundraising because the money I get for an investor is the amount of money I get from the investor. For each new round, I need to go and find a totally new set of investors. So that's really a key ingredient of the Silicon Valley secret sauce, that if you get the right investors on board, founders need to spend considerably less time time fundraising than in a lot of other ecosystems. You then have a few other things that's key. And one, I think, is this uh, uh, metaphor of acquisition-minded aircraft carriers in the U.S. and Silicon Valley, meaning that the little tech startups are like fighter jets. And then you have these big aircraft carriers, Google, Oracle, Facebook, uh, Apple, etc., that acquires a lot of startup companies. So the little fighter jets are landing on the aircraft carriers and become absorbed by them, which obviously then fuels an acquisition-minded ecosystem, which is really good because venture capitalists then knows that there are potentially a lot of exits to be had. So in a lot of other ecosystems in the world, acquisitions are nowhere near as common as they are in Silicon Valley. So I think that's a key difference. The other thing which sort of happens in Silicon Valley is this notion of serendipity. So you actually really have a lot of 
chance meetings have happened. People meet sharing in Uber, they chat, they meet in an airport lounge, their VC picks up the phone and say, hey, I've got someone in my office right now, why don't you drive over and meet them in 15 minutes time? Friends look out for each other and kind of think, who should they meet? So, so it's kind of a very dense ecosystem, people looking out for each other, they're paying it forward, VCs are doing a lot of the heavy, heavy lifting, bringing follow-on funding. Um, so it's a very interesting ecosystem, and most other places in the world fall short of this in one way or another. That was a very good answer. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I think basically what you laid out is, uh, I think, what many entrepreneurs would consider like a dream climate for building and growing their business. And I think a lot of Scandinavian entrepreneurs, uh, at least uh, I've seen in Sweden, are are really dreaming of venturing out from the Nordics and into the Bay Area. And hopefully some of them are listening. How do you, who has experience from there, how do you suggest that they prepare? And are there any like typical mistakes that you see, perhaps especially entrepreneurs from the Nordics, make again and again? And maybe do you have any tips for how they can avoid them? Yeah, I think first of all, you got to be clear on why do you go to the U.S. and the Bay Area? Are you going there purely because you want to do market development, PR, marketing to drive sales, to penetrate the U.S. market? Or are you also going there because you want to tap into the venture capital community and raise funding? Uh, here is something where a lot of entrepreneurs aren't clear from the beginning, and I've seen this over and over again. So the important thing is if you only want to drive sales in the U.S., you can have your company anywhere in the world. Your management team can be located anywhere in the world because you're just penetrating the American market and you got to do that. However, the game changes significantly if you want to tap into the U.S. venture capital community. There are exceptions, but by and large, the vast major majority of U.S. venture capital firms will only invest in U.S. domiciled corporations and typically only in a legal entity form called U.S. Delaware C-Corporations, which are C-Corp is an entity type incorporated in the state of Delaware, which means that venture capitalists only need to know the state legislation in Delaware as opposed to each one of the 50 United, uh, 50 United States. What also happens is that very often, if you are a general partner in a venture capital fund, you might be overlooking 10 to 20 investment companies. So if you are doing that, you're not really wanna, going to want to get on a plane to have a board meeting in London, Stockholm, Oslo, Helsinki, Copenhagen, or Singapore for that matter, because your day becomes a nightmare uh, your working week becomes a nightmare if you're looking after 10, 20 companies and you're going to fly to the other side of the planet because you more or less misses an entire week. Also, what you do is you're continuously working this dense network of Silicon Valley, which means that I know that I have someone in my office right now that I just met that is good for Isabel. So I'm going to pick up the phone to, to Isabel and say, 
please come here in 15 minutes time, you need to meet this person. So here is where it goes wrong for a lot of foreigners. They kind of think that they can be an overseas company and they just go on a couple of trips to Silicon Valley and people are going to throw millions and millions of dollars of funding after them. By and large, that's really hard. So if you not just want to sell into the market, but you want to raise venture capital there, you are typically going to have to do what's called a reverse asset flip. You're setting up a U.S. Delaware C corporation that then acquires your, say, Nordic holding company in one of the Nordic companies, uh, Nordic countries, and that com company becomes a subsidiary under the U.S. Uh, company. And then the founders are spending a considerable amount of their time in the Bay Area. All the board meetings are being held there. So typically, they are at least half of their time in the Bay Area so that they can take advantage of being an insider in this ecosystem, have a lot of these meetings. They can keep the bulk of their operations back home in their home countries. But here is really kind of a key thing. What's also important in the U.S. that... Americans would look whether this company is relevant for America. And the best way of proving that is that you have market validation in America. So a very good cycle here is to begin by doing sales in America, building up your sales pipeline, showing that you get traction in the American context. If that goes well, you then look at doing an asset flip into U.S. Delaware C Corporation and relocating key founders, including the CEO, over to the U.S. Uh, what then becomes important as you work with the U.S., and here is where something goes a little wrong, quite often companies coming from abroad uh, get hold of a number of people trying to sell them consulting services, either for cash or sweat equity. And... Sometimes these people will not be entirely honest about the company's ultimate potential in the U.S. market because they're salespeople essentially out there to cut the deal. So you have to be really careful here when you're talking to potential U.S. partners that can support your market entry. Are they giving you absolutely honest advice here? Or are they painting a rosy picture because they are, in fact, trying to sell you their services? That's something to look out for. That was very concrete and good. <laughs> uh, I've, I've been nodding, jotting down notes here. Uh, but I want to shift gears a bit because uh, you've started and you've founded a variety of different companies yourself in the tech space. For example, Carbon Story, which I mentioned was a crowdfunding platform for climate change mitigation projects. And it seems like uh, almost every entrepreneur has some sort of sustainable aspect to their business or is trying to solve one of the sustainability goals. Uh, could you, uh, having talked to so many different entrepreneurs and founders every single day, tell me a bit about the trends that you see in entrepreneurships and uh, perhaps what kind of technologies or problems that we should be looking into? So, I mean, this is obviously the million-dollar question, so I'll try and kind of tackle it from a few different angles. One thing that I think is very important if you are going for venture capital type of investors is that you are pursuing highly scalable business models. And the definition of a business model that's highly scalable is that as your customer numbers and your revenue shoots off, ideally in a hockey stick progression over time, your operating cost and your capital expenditures is not following linearly your customer base 
and your revenue projection. Um, if you have a linear relationship between OPEX and CAPEX and revenue, you are more operating in a traditional business, being the same 97% of businesses out there in the world. So, I mean, really think about stress testing what you are doing so that your business model is really scalable and that technology does the heavy lifting for you as opposed to you tying up working capital, fixed asset, needing to hire a lot of people. Then when it comes into the particular sectors, one thing that's quite important here is that you get the timing right. Because if you invest way too early into a sector before it's ready to take off, you have a too long runway really to work before that fabled hockey stick kicks in. At the same time, if you invest too late, there tends to be a number of people that have already looked at this opportunity and things are bubbling in the background that you may not see, but they will shoot up like mushrooms doing more or less the same thing as you're doing. So it's kind of a tricky thing getting that timing right. You want to be just before the inflection point of the hockey stick. Then when it comes into sectors, there are kind of two ways of doing this. One is to go and look at what are the hot areas right now. You can say fintech. There's a lot of things happening in fintech. People are jumping on that bandwagon. That's one way of looking at it. I like to be a little bit contrarian. So I very often like to look at digitalization scores by industry. And here is where you can Google that. So you can do like degree of digitalization by 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 industry vertical industry sector and you get some really interesting charts pulled together by management consultants market analysts and you can find there that there is enormous white space out there sectors like agriculture's materials constructions law engineering consultancy senior care a number of real sectors that so far are operating in a relatively traditional way, and they have not reaped the full benefits of digitalization. And very often they are cash-rich industries. Look at the amount of money going into construction, into agriculture, into senior care as examples, and there is so much white space for opportunity. So I really encourage people to look for those white space opportunities and then think, what are the highly scalable business models that we can pursue, digital, highly scalable models, where technology do a lot of the heavy lifting using platforms that mediate between buyers and sellers, using clever AI algorithms, machine learning, databases, knowledge management structures to really improve efficiency significantly within sectors that have not reaped the full benefit of digitalization. Thank you. Uh, that was uh, very clarifying as well. Um, I want to ask you a bit about uh, your cultural, I guess, reflections, because you've lived in, in 10 uh, different countries, uh, at least, and I think that you've been living in Singapore for the past 13 years. Uh, and I can imagine that the Asian market is quite different than the Nordics in, in many ways. But having worked with entrepreneurs there and here and uh, taught at several universities, including the National University of Singapore, what are the differences and the similarities uh, between us? Uh, what I, I guess more interesting, what can we learn from Singapore? Yeah, I think it's... Uh 
it's a quite tricky question because Southeast Asia is an incredibly fragmented market. You have some really rich countries there and Singapore being the richest, then down to places like Myanmar and Cambodia that are relatively poor. So, so you have enormous fragmentation in terms of economic development, in terms of religion, in terms of size of the domestic market. Um, but one thing I think... Uh, which is very different between the Nordics and Asia, is that in the Nordics, we have a long tradition of R&D heavy businesses. So businesses that invest a lot in research and development and uh, to create IP and patents. And businesses, whether they are tech-driven businesses or whether they are consumer brands in fashion and other sectors, that are investing a lot in building consumer brands. And this is sort of where the Nordics really stand out, which means that a lot of investors understand these type of businesses where you fundamentally invest a lot in R&D and in brand building. Asia, historically, Southeast Asia is rather different. That if you think about it, you don't have that many global consumer brands coming out there and not as many R&D heavy businesses. It's obviously changing, but historically. So quite a lot what you have seen across Southeast Asia are ethnic Chinese uh, entrepreneurs coming out of a trading mentality, buying and selling, looking at volumes, looking at margins. So what you see there are businesses that have a bit more of a sales push, uh, being very good at working channels, volumes, margin, while in the Nordics, you have a little bit more of a marketing pull, creating the IP, the R&D of the product, building your brand and leveraging marketing to kind of pull in your customer. And Southeast Asia has more of a kind of sales-oriented sales push. So I think that's sort of one of the key differences that we see. Uh, what... Another key difference that I think we have is that Asia is incredibly hungry. Uh, people are people have really come out of poverty uh, much more recently than people have done in the Nordics. So you really feel this drive to work hard. So people are often pulling incredibly long hours in the evenings, in the weekends. Uh, in many cases young people are supporting their parents and their extended family with school fee, with, with rent or mortgages, with utility field, uh, fees, etc. So people are incredibly hungry to, to better their place in society and kind of come up, uh, w which is really like a key difference. And there, I think, is where in the Nordics sometimes one has to watch this because there are people in other parts of the world that are just super hungry to succeed and uh, they are willing to go the extra mile uh, uh, to sort of do that. Uh, when it comes to Singapore, I think one thing with the Nordics to really learn from is um, creating a global talent pool. So if you really look at Singapore in the startup ecosystem, when it comes to the diversity of founders, diversity of the venture capitalists, diversity of the university professors in the tech disciplines, in the business schools, you have a wonderful diversity of people. And in the Nordics, it's a little bit less so. Uh, you will have 
more of a sort of homogeneous kind of base. There is less diversity, while Singapore has become really a global talent pool. And here is really where I think uh, we need to do better in the Nordics in terms of attracting people from all walks of life, all kinds of background and countries uh, to come to the Nordics, which has historically been a little tough because we have long, cold winters here. Uh, it's dark. We have high taxation regimes, sometimes property markets where it's a little inflexible and difficult to rent the place to live. But I mean, my vision of the Nordics would really be a place that opens up and invites the world in different ways so that we get m more diversity just like in Singapore. I could not agree with you more. That was a perfect way to uh, go towards the end of this podcast. But uh, finally, I want to uh, ask you, if you were to embark on a new venture today as an entrepreneur, are there any lessons that you've learned during your previous ventures that uh, you would bring into a new one? I mean, what would you do differently, basically? I think there are, I mean, uh, one thing to begin with that often happens, and I made a mistake myself in the past, is really the thing that all co-founders just split equity equally uh, because it feels like it's a nice thing. We're all friends. We're in it together. Here is really, I think, where um, I would probably do it a little differently. And potentially, if it was my idea, if I'd really incubated it and worked on it for some time, uh, I would not be shy of actually, say, having a greater stake myself in the company, but recruiting co-founders who have lesser of an equity stake. Uh, that, I think, is something that I would have the guts to do now. While earlier in the career, it was all this peace and brotherly love type of thing, we should all be equal, which isn't necessarily really good or not necessarily fair, especially not if someone has spent six months, a year, two years, really working on something before embarking on the journey. So that's something I'd be a little tougher on. I think as well, I do a lot of founder, a lot of sessions with other founders in different parts of the world. So I'm trying to build in a lot of the wisdom and things I've learned along the way. So one of the key things here that we've already touched upon is to be ruthless with myself if the business model is actually highly scalable and to call myself some of these more traditional models that have that more linear relationship with OPEX and CAPEX, whether it's working capital, whether it's you know, input material, whether it's needing to, to hire labor. So I would be a little smarter in terms of doing these more asset light, highly scalable business models. What I've also learned, which is something I share with Anther founders, is what are the key triggers we, you need to be really good at knowing what's needed for one particular business to be successful. And I don't think industry vertical is the thing that matters here, but really archetypes of businesses. Consumer digital businesses have certain needs. Consumer hardware businesses, others enterprise software, other businesses, industrial IoT, robotics, hardware, certain needs. And lastly, the kind of chemistry, compound, material sciences businesses. So I think earlier on in my career, I had more of a kind of one size fits all approach. 
now I think I've kind of over time learned what are the things that really matters for a particular type of business? What are the things the team need to excel on, the basis you need to cover, where your pitch deck needs to be excellent, which is something that I'm now built into presentation material that I'm taking all the Antler founders through. And we are very grateful for that. <laughs> uh, if you were to leave our audience with one note from the entire conversation, it could be uh, the most important lesson you want everyone to go to bed with tonight. What would you want them to remember? I think really that I would say try whatever you do in life, try to be in the top 10, 20%. If you're in school, try and be a top 10, 20% student. If you're a parent, try and be a top 10, 20% parent. If you're employing a cleaner uh, domestic staff, try and be top 10, 20% employee, uh, employer. If you're employing staff, be a top 10, 20% employer in that. So I think same thing goes with startups. Whether you are pre-seed, seed stage, series A, series B, in comparison to everything that's out there, aspire to always be in the top 10, 20%. If you do that, other things will magically flow from there. That would be kind of my number one message. Try and be those overachievers in a way that are always in the top 20% of things. Because a lot of other things will naturally flow from it. Hmm. Does that mean that whatever you do, I mean, if you, if you realize that you're on a track and you're probably not going to be able to get into the top 20%, should you leave and do something else or no but the type of thing is that i don't view it i mean of course it's difficult to even know if you really are in the top 20 percent. but i think it's the mindset you should adopt uh, with your own schooling with your employees with your children try and aspire to be in the top 20 percent uh, because that will sort of make you ask a very key question what does good look like? What does it look like to be a pre-seed or a stage, stage company? What does it look like to be a really good parent? What does it look like to be a really good boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband? So I think something like that is a self-calibrating mechanism to constantly ask yourself, what does good look like? Where am I right now? How can I get better? And if you're not feeling that you can really be there, you got a kind of question, can you do some adjustments to go there? Or should you maybe even try to excel in a different arena? Because it's very hard in the long run to be successful if you are not kind of in the top quintile, specifically in entrepreneurship, because investors will know companies at each and every stage, and they will kind of subconsciously rank the different pitches and the different teams and the companies that they are meeting. Hmm. That was very uh, interesting and uh, gave a lot of people something to think about, I think maybe uh, also in the way they raise their children. Um, finally, though, we have three quick questions before I let you go. Um, you are a overachiever, to uh, say the least. Uh, if you could give yourself uh, uh, two pieces of advice uh, as, a, as a 20-year-old Andreas, what would they be? I think one thing that I would actually do is that I would have spent a lot more time earlier in my career learning about technology. Um, I spent too much time around business, finance, economics, 
political science, government, culture, all of those things. I would have spent more time in depth on technology and I would specifically have thought about technology as modular Lego bricks. What does a particular technical field do? Because quite often when it comes to companies, you are combining different technical disciplines like modular Lego bricks. And if you understand how these different bricks, what they can do, you can, like a kid playing with Lego, you can begin to see endless opportunities of combining different technical domains. Um, so that's something that I would have focused a lot more time on earlier in my career because it's fascinating. The other thing I think I would have done is to actually have worked more with entrepreneurship earlier. I had a few kind of more lost years, I guess. Uh, I was quite entrepreneurial when I was really young in my studies and I did a lot of things and I'm rather entrepreneurial now. Uh, but early on in my career, I actually had this notion that I should have a big, solid corporate career doing things. This is where I would have found other outlets to be more entrepreneurial, whether as a small scale investor, as an advisor, mentor, volunteer. So I would really have uh, engaged a little earlier instead of having this notion that first I should get a proper kind of corporate career. After that, I can sort of venture out and be entrepreneurial. So these are my two advices to myself. One would have been really learning about technology and the modularity of it and, and how technology can be combined. And the other thing sort of to not have sort of necessarily focused so much on the corporate career in the beginning of things I did. That is very interesting because I just turned 30 and I think that was the two pieces of advice I gave myself as a 20-year-old. Um, going into the next uh, question, what's your favorite podcast? I really like Masters of Scale with Reid Hoffman, uh, which is a podcast that I've kind of made recommended material across all of the Antler programs because you get to hear from a lot of the big tech founders in Silicon Valley and beyond talking about different things how you blitz scale and do your growth marketing, how you perfect Brian Chesky of Airbnb, talking about handcrafting and perfecting the customer experience, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Sheryl Sandberg, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a wonderful podcast for free to download and you can listen to it as you commute back and from work, you sit on airplanes and you do different things. So, so I think that's one of the more interesting ones out there. I agree. I agree 100%. Finally, Andreas, where should people go to follow you? So I'm not that great in terms of my social media presence. I guess if I'd been a millennial, maybe I would have been a lot better at this than I am. Uh, I tend to focus really most of my time I travel about 70-80% of my time, so I go around the world and I have a lot of group sessions with Antler founders in different countries and then one-on-one -on -one coaching. So the best way of actually spending time with me is to join one of the Antler programs in one of the locations around the world, then there you get to meet me. Or I do occasionally post a few things on LinkedIn, and I have this ambition and my New Year's promise every year that I kind of fail on is that I should actually be better at writing up my thoughts and sharing it with the greater world. But that's why I'm grateful, Isabel, that you invited me to this podcast, because it gives me a chance to talk to a greater audience, because I've not been as good as that as I wish I had been in the past. 
Well, as I was interviewing you, I'm very glad that you joined us too because you do have a lot of very concrete and uh, good advice that I don't think that many people are aware of. Um, so I'm very, very thankful for you joining us, Andreas. It's been incredibly interesting and I'm hoping that several of our listeners feel empowered and inspired to succeed as an entrepreneur. So thank you. Thank you so much, Isabel. Thank you for listening to Future Forecast. I'm your host, Isabel Ringnes. Tune in next week for more insights on technology, leadership, and sustainability. 